With his unique perspective on the medical legal system, here's Victor Cotton. Welcome to the Law and Medicine Podcast. 25 years ago, when I was in law school, I took a class called Trial Advocacy. It focused on teaching courtroom skills, and it culminated by having us, as law students, try cases. Now, the cases were fictitious, but the format was very realistic. We had a mock courtroom, a jury, witnesses, and a local judge oversaw the case. And at the end, the jury would render a verdict, and then everyone would critique our performance. So, I had a case involving a truck driver who had been accidentally killed at a construction site. The guy had delivered a load of pipe, and he was in a hurry, so he prematurely unfastened all of the straps that secured the load, which he shouldn't have done. And when the forklift attempted to unload the trailer, the pipe rolled off and crushed the driver. And the other key fact was that the truck driver may have been intoxicated, but his widow sued the construction company and I was defending the case. So I put the widow on the witness stand and I asked her about her husband's drinking. And she responded by saying that he was a heavy drinker and that he may have been drinking on the day of the accident, which is exactly what I was hoping to hear. And as I was about to ask her some follow-up questions, she started crying. And she went off on a tangent, saying that her husband would get drunk and mistreat her and mistreat the kids. And I didn't want to tell her to shut up because I was worried that it might turn the jury against me. So I waited for her to quiet down. And I internally debated whether I should ask any more questions about the alcohol because I was worried that it would set her off and make it look like I was abusing a poor widow. So I decided that I had enough information about the drinking and I moved on to some other questions. And I thought I handled it pretty well. So we got to the debrief and the first thing the judge said to me was, Why did you stop questioning the widow about the alcohol? And I began to explain that I didn't want to turn the jury against me, so I thought I'd show a little empathy. And he cut me off mid-sentence, pointed his finger at me, and said, You're a lawyer, and the witness had information that you needed. You ask the questions, and I'll make her answer. So that's what I learned about empathy in law school. And you can therefore imagine how surprised I was to discover that within the medical legal field, attorneys are viewed as empathy experts. If you look at all the risk management articles discussing the importance of empathy, sympathy, and compassion, you'll find that almost all of them are written by lawyers. And most of the risk management lectures you've attended over the course of your career have consisted of a lawyer talking about empathy. Lawyers teaching doctors about empathy. It sounds like the punchline to a joke, which it's not, but it is a dead giveaway that something's going on here. So, let me explain what it is. When a lawyer talks about empathy, 
He's not referring to the same concept that you know as empathy. Lawyers view empathy differently than doctors do, differently than other human beings do. To a physician, empathy is a humanistic virtue that's used to comfort a patient. And to a lawyer, empathy is a risk management tool that's used to persuade a patient. A physician delivers empathy to benefit the patient, and a lawyer delivers empathy to manipulate the patient. So when lawyers talk about expressing empathy to patients, what they're describing is a bedside version of courtroom theatrics, using feigned emotion to manipulate someone. A sick patient in this case. Which brings me to the centerpiece of modern risk management, medical apology programs. Almost every hospital and every malpractice insurance company has an apology program, and here's how they work. When a patient suffers a medical error or some other type of bad outcome, you activate the apology program and a team of lawyers, risk managers, and insurance experts will step in and advise you on how to communicate with your patient, what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. And the goal is to deliver heavy doses of empathy, sympathy, apology, kindness, and compassion to prevent the patient from suing you. Now, the patient doesn't know that this is your motive, and he doesn't know that what you're saying has been scripted by a lawyer. He thinks you're being genuine, that you care about him, and that you're actually trying to comfort him. And I'm frequently asked whether apology programs reduce legal risk. If you apologize and empathize and say the right words in the right way, does it reduce the risk of the patient suing you? Well, let me rephrase the question. If you deliver a scripted apology with the right amount of feigned emotion, can you manipulate an injured patient into not suing you? I don't know. And it doesn't matter because anyone who does that is a con man, not a physician. The problem with medical apology programs is not that they encourage empathy, it's that they strategically deploy it for the selfish purpose of reducing legal risk. And because the purpose is corrupted, this is a false type of empathy and an unethical way to treat a patient. Now, of course, the folks who run these programs deny that this is what they're doing. According to them, the only purpose is to comfort the patient. Okay, then why are the programs run by lawyers and risk experts? When did they become so interested in comforting patients? And why isn't the ethics committee, the humanities department, or the hospital chaplain involved? Those people specialize in empathy, yet they're nowhere to be found. When you look at the people who run these programs, the people behind it, it tells you that it's not about comforting the patient, it's about conning the patient. Now, just to be clear, 
I'm not saying that you have to just sit there and let people sue you. On the contrary, I've spent 30 years talking about how to reduce that possibility. But we can't become fakers, liars, and con men in the process. You know, as a lawyer, I'm not allowed to pull this on a client. The rules of professional responsibility prohibit a lawyer from using his superior knowledge and the trust of his client against the client. If I make a mistake and am worried that my client might sue me, I'm not allowed to activate an apology program and begin maneuvering against my client. On the contrary, before I'm allowed to pursue any type of resolution, I'm required to advise my client in writing that he should consult with another attorney and I'm required to give him sufficient time to do so. And if I fail to do that, I could lose my license because I would be taking advantage of the client's trust and the client's vulnerability for my own benefit. And we lawyers consider that to be a very serious infraction. So, am I saying that lawyers are more ethical than physicians? No, not at all. Most physicians would never abuse a patient in this manner. But unfortunately, what most physicians would do is largely irrelevant because the practice of medicine is increasingly controlled by large corporations. And if the corporate lawyers come up with an idea to reduce legal risk and save money, then you either get on board or you can look for another job. And here's an example of what that produces. A patient was admitted to a hospital in Ohio, and on his admission labs, his serum potassium was very elevated. But the lab made a mistake and didn't alert anyone, and the patient winded up dying in part due to the hyperkalemia. So the hospital activated its apology program, and in accordance with the protocol, the CMO and the risk manager met with the family. And during the meeting, the CMO showed empathy, he showed sympathy, he told the family what happened, he admitted that it was the hospital's fault, and he even apologized. And the lawsuit doesn't provide his exact words, but the typical script goes as follows. We're terribly sorry that your father died, and we certainly feel for your loss. And we know that you're hurting. That's only natural. But through your tears, we hope you can see that it's better if we resolve this matter without involving lawyers. Well, without you involving your lawyer, we've already talked to our lawyers at great length. But it doesn't really matter who has a lawyer. If you're willing to forgive us and forget about our mistake, we'll pay you $5,000 and we can just put all of this behind us. That's the usual script, and the goal is to parlay the patient's trust, capitalize on the family's grief, and settle the case for pennies on the dollar or maybe nothing at all. And if you don't think that's what's happening here, I can tell you that one of the hard rules of apology programs is that they are not to be used if the patient has an attorney.
So as long as the patient's sick, the family's grieving, and you're the only one who has an attorney, then go ahead and apologize. But if the patient's in a position to defend himself, then you probably shouldn't try it. Well, this family didn't have an attorney, but they weren't naive, and they secretly recorded the conversation. It's legal to do that in Ohio, in most states actually, and they took the recording to a lawyer who then sued the hospital. And in the course of the lawsuit, the family's lawyer shared a copy of the recording and indicated that he was going to play it for the jury. Now, upon learning this, how do you think the hospital responded? Well, if their apology was genuine and they were the virtuous people that apology experts proclaim to be, we'd expect them to say something like, Go ahead and play the recording. We stand behind what we said and we take responsibility for what we did. But that's not quite what they said. Nah, not so much. They filed a motion to quash the recording. They asked the judge to rule that the recording couldn't be used at trial. And when the judge denied the motion, they filed an appeal, which probably cost them $50,000. And when the appellate court also ruled that the recording was admissible, they settled the case and paid the family. So, here's my question. Why did they spend so much money trying to suppress that recording? You see, whether or not there was a recording, the family's lawyer could put the CMO on the witness stand and ask him what he said. And because the CMO would be under oath, he'd be required to tell the truth, which means that he would have to accurately and honestly recount his entire conversation with the family. And if that's what he was going to say, which is what he's required to say, then why did it matter if there was also a recording? And why did they spend a bunch of money trying to quash it? Because without the recording, the CMO could take the witness stand and deny everything. He could say that the family was grieving, that they were distraught, and that they misunderstood what he said. No, 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 that's not what I said at all. That's how they planned on defending the case. They tried to con a grieving family with a fake apology, and when it went bad, they planned on lying their way out of it. But they couldn't do that if there was a recording. So they settled the case and went back to their hospital knowing that they could revise their methodology and try it all again tomorrow with some other injured patient and distraught family. Empathy, sympathy, compassion, and kindness have long been integral parts of the practice of medicine, and we should continue to convey them wherever and whenever they can help the patient. And if doing so happens to also reduce your legal risk as a byproduct of your true intentions, then you are fully entitled to reap all of that benefit. But no physician should ever deploy a humanistic virtue as a risk management strategy because that's the domain of con men. 
Thanks for listening to me today. You have been listening to Victor Cotton, physician, attorney, and founder of Law & Medicine. If you'd like to learn more about us or support our efforts, we invite you to visit our website at lawandmed.com. We offer a variety of online educational courses for which you can earn Category 1 CME credit. Many of our courses can be used to meet your malpractice insurance company's requirements for a policy discount. And if you receive a CME allowance from your employer, we can provide you with a receipt which can be used to obtain reimbursement. This has been a production of Law & Medicine, Hershey, Pennsylvania. All rights are reserved.